This isn't fair. How could they do this to me? I thought we were a team. We've been working toward this for years, side by side, arm in arm, promising to share the profits and the glory. But now the day is here, and they're keeping everything for themselves. This just can't be possible. How did this happen? This is Cursed Knowledge. Welcome back to Cursed Knowledge. I'm Harper Hunt. And I'm Ben Hunt. And Ben, I wanted to talk to you today a little bit about some movies that have failed that you don't think have failed. Wait, wait, wait. You want to talk about movies again? I want I'm to really, talk about movies I'm really, again. I'm surprised, but that, that's, that's you great. You can't be that surprised. <laughs> it's half I'm not of surprised what I talk about. Half my personality is talking about movies. The other half is talking about other weird stuff no one cares about. We love it. We love it. What's on your mind today? Well, I was going down kind of a Wikipedia rabbit hole, as I do, and I realized that Forrest Gump apparently made no money. Oh, I see where this is going. Okay, this is going to be good. It's going to Absolutely. Be good. Okay, so overall, Forrest Gump had a budget of $55 million. Hmm. Okay. Which, you know, for the 90s. Not that, I guess for the 90s, you're right. That was, for the 90s, that was a while back. pretty big budget. You know, mm-hmm. great movie. It made almost $700 million at the box office. I've seen it a few times, yeah. I, I know you have. And so, you know, that those are amazing numbers. It, you know, more than, more than doubled the budget by a fair bit. However, Paramount still says that they're actually $62 million in the red, that they lost money okay. on Forrest Gump. These stories are amazing. And, and I... I'm blanking on the guy's name, but he's from Alabama, the mm-hmm. author. Yes. Uh, do you remember the name? I don't. Okay. But uh, because it was a book first, and, and I remember something about, well, I'm, I'm curious. So I'm assuming that the author the has author made got no money from this. Nothing. Well, okay, listen. He's gotten a few hundred thousand, but he was promised part of the profits of the movie. He was there promised millions. There we go. He's well, gotten change. He was promised Profits from the movie. He and was to your promised three percent. Uh, okay, okay, of the net profits. Net profits. Okay, yeah, I see where this is going. This is the old saying: "Net is for chumps." It's Hollywood <laughs> accounting. It's Hollywood studios basically have this well-earned reputation of being absolute scumbags because what they'll do is they will constantly be changing what goes into profit and what goes into budget. Mm-hmm. Whatever they can do to make the budget look higher and the profit look smaller. Because ultimately, they get paid. They make money. But if they can say that the profit was less than expected or we actually didn't make any profit yet, then they don't have to pay that money to their collaborators, to the actors, to the directors, to people who work on the movie. Well, I'd always assumed that this must have something to do with the constellation of companies mm-hmm. within a within the motion picture ecosystem, right? I mean, distribution, exhibition. Yeah, I, I just assume that these are all part and parcel or or allies mm-hmm. of the same corporate entity, and they shuffle stuff around. Is that how it works? Definitely to an extent, because 
I think we need to realize is that a lot of companies are actually subsidiaries of right. a parent company. So what happens is when you say, oh, well, we had to pay $10 million to catering. Well, Warner Brothers had to give $10 million to Warner Brothers Catering. Got it. So the budget is them getting paid, is them getting their money. And then anything else would go to, again, like the actors, the directors, kind of the creative talent. Well, I, I'm i sure that they're, because I've kind of heard on the side some kind of, this is kind of famous, right? That there are these oh, horror yeah. stories. So, so so give us some stories. We got we got to need some stories. All right. So, have you ever seen the Lord of the Rings? <laughs> I, I am familiar with the work. You've heard yes. of them. You've yes. heard of them. Yes, I've heard of those. Peter movies. Jackson directed probably the most famous trilogy of all times. Yep. Seventeen Oscars, and he had to sue New Line Cinema in order to get money off of it. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> because despite making about six billion dollars, right. Three billion from ticket sales from just the three movies. New Line Cinema, which was the subsidiary that basically launched Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. they were saying, sorry, man, we didn't make any money. That's incredible. The Tolkien estate later also had to sue because J.R.R. Tolkien's estate was not getting any money off of the Lord of the Rings. Incredible. What about, So I, I would think that these kind of big... I'll call it kind of multi-film pictures because I always mm -hmm. also assumed that a slate of movies where you could kind of, I mean, I mean, in this case where I think all of those movies were successful, mm -hmm. but you know, you also see this in other sort of business lines, right? Where you have a contract for a group of movies, and so if even one of them is not successful, you can use that as a sink to assign all of the profits from the successful movies. So I'm, I'm just wondering about the other kind of big multi-part movies or the like, how, how, how did they work out? If you've got stories there, and I'm not sure Not as many, well, actually not many, because part of the problem and the way that Hollywood gets away with this for so long is that they don't release any information. They right. don't release information about contracts. They don't, they rarely tell you what the budget is. And if they do, they never give you a breakdown of what's actually gone into the budget. If they tell you this is how much money a movie made, they will often leave things out. You know, this is how much a movie made if we don't look at merchandise, if we don't look at international ticket sales, mm -hmm. if we don't mm -hmm. look at, you know, it used to be like DVD, VHS sales, cable licensing, all of that. They can pick and choose what gets added in. So honestly, it kind of depends on the situation because they will change it to whatever is going to benefit them. Well, I'm a, a man of a certain age, mm -hmm. so I remember there was something around I remember, you know, you don't know this guy Art Buckwald, you know, he's a columnist and mm -hmm. I remember there's something around in Eddie Murphy and Coming to America, so yes, that was a Yes, I do story. actually know about that. Okay. So, in 1982, Art Buckwald writes this script treatment, which is basically kind of a I would more detailed than an outline, mm -hmm. but kind of like a pretty clear, like, this is what the story could be called King for a Day. King for a Day. Okay. Which is the plot for. Is essentially becomes the plot for coming to America. Mm -hmm. Now, originally, this treatment is optioned by Paramount, which means that Paramount is kind of developing the script. They've got different ideas going around. It's a Paramount project. Right. But then two years later, dropped by Paramount, they say they're not going to move forward with it. So then it gets picked up by Warner Brothers, and now Warner Brothers starts developing the idea. But as Warner Brothers is developing King for a Day, 
Paramount now has this new idea for a movie starring Eddie Murphy called Coming to America. Oh, wow. Warner Brothers Was have... Eddie Murphy associated, attached to the movie before? Yes. Well, more so that Art Buckwalt had always envisioned this as an Eddie Murphy oh, story. Oh, gotcha. So his gotcha. name was always kind of mentioned as, this is an this Eddie is Murphy character. Right, right. This is who we should be imagining. And now Warner Brothers drops King for a day sure. because it's too similar to Coming to America. Well, how does Paramount get away with that, with like doing a movie that's so clearly, I mean, so mm-hmm. and this, is, this is kind of my vague, so Buckwald sues on this. He sues on this. Does he win? They settle. Okay. And I got to say, he didn't get money from it. Right. They got, he got maybe enough to cover lawyer fees, but he didn't get the money that he would get as the writer for coming to America. So this is a, I mean, I mean this has got to come up. I'm just, sorry, I'm, what I'm thinking about right now, I have no experience with movies, but I've got a little bit of experience with talking with uh, book publishers. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I mean, I mean, I published some academic books, but there it's just, I mean, I didn't expect to actually make any money on that. There's a reason why professors have every class buy their book. Well, you know, the weird thing, though, is that the textbooks can be quite lucrative. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so, but that's a whole field that I didn't go down. Talking to publishers more recently, though, it's like, are, are you kidding me? Because there's there's no, first off, to your point earlier, there's no, you don't get any information right, about how your book sold. The whole royalty, and it, it just strikes me as crazy. And then they, they, they try to explain the economics, mm-hmm. and I get it. They're in a business where a lot of these don't make money. I don't know if that's the same business with, with movies, where I, I suspect that they have a higher hit ratio, money-making ratio, in Hollywood than in book publishing. But it was crazy how lopsided it seemed, both the informational flow as well as the economics were here. Absolutely. I think that a big part of the way that these businesses are able to make money is by hiding information, by keeping people ignorant. If you don't actually know how many people saw your movie, if you don't know how many people bought that book, then you, the person not getting the money, who's waiting on royalties, you can kind of... you, You don't have as the knowledge that you need in order to really make a case. Well, let me ask you this, because, you know, again, my limited knowledge of Hollywood, Mm -hmm. married with my limited experiences on content with, with, you know, corporate publishers or distributors, it's that I don't know or I was not expecting all the different ways in which the movie studio or the publisher can make money with my creative work. You mm-hmm. know, I think of it as, you know, oh, I write a book, here we're going to publish it, ta-da, there, you know, people buy the book. And then there are all these different rights, you know, different markets, every market has a different contract. And the audio, I I want to bring this back to Hollywood because I remember, you know, famously, I, I think it was Scarlett Johansson, Scarlett right? Scarlett Johansson sued the Black about Black Widow. Widow. Yes. Because as I recall, the thing there was she had, had a contract was okay they're going to make this movie they're going to release it into studios i've got my compensation set up for how that's going to work Mm -hmm. and then i guess as disney said no we're not going to release it in movie theaters at all it's going to go straight to streaming and you don't get paid for that 
Not quite. So, yes, her compensation was built around the fact that this was going to be released in theaters. Mm-hmm. All of her, her like, part of the profits, everything was probably what's called first dollar. Right. So it's So she had sales. learned the net is for chumps, and she yes. was going for the gross money from the ticket sales. As soon as you start making money on ticket sales, she gets a cut. Got it. Makes sense. Makes sense. She's been in the, it, this was the big Marvel movie, the last okay. one she would be in. But the problem was, it was not that Disney released it on streaming instead. It's that it released it on streaming and in theaters at the same time. Oh, I see. And so her case was that she was promised that this would be a theaters-only release. And also that Disney was, she wasn't going to get any money off of it being on streaming. Oh, wow. She gets nothing because her contract only talks about the theatrical theatrical release. release. So she was also saying that... They were using her work and her image to prop up the then fairly new Disney Plus service. Yes. It didn't help that Disney bragged that they had made $60 million. Right. On, off on of, Disney off Plus of Black from Widow, this. Right. Off of Black Widow. Of which she didn't get anything. Which she didn't get anything from. And okay. that's why that's why she sued despite having worked with them for almost a decade at that point. But then this has got, so this is what is fascinating to me, right, is that the the, the way that, again, I hate this word, but I'll use it, content, mm-hmm. can be repurposed and reused and then distributed in different ways. And if you sign a contract, if you sign a deal for one area, then I, are, you just, are you just screwed when it goes into another area? So this was part of why the recent actor strike happened mm-hmm. was because studios were not giving people revenue from their streaming services. It used to be, you know, you know, you want to talk about royalties. If an episode of, if you were in an episode of Friends and they're airing the reruns, you get a check every time that episode Every time airs. a syndicated thing comes out, And you get it, it may not be a lot, but you get a little bit of money. Yep. But as soon as Friends goes on to, you know, whatever streaming service it is, Netflix, Hulu, Peacock, then you're not seeing any money from that anymore. Is that right? Oh, wow. Because uh, this comes back to kind of hiding all of their information. Mm-hmm. They don't tell you how many people have watched a show. They won't give you money based on that. Part of it is also that I don't know if studios are able to figure out, okay, well, did this person sign up for this content? Or if you already have a oh, subscription. like if it's all you can eat, then you know, they're not going to... I mean, I, mm-hmm. they have that information, I promise you, of what they watch. But I do see it that, you know, they're not going to share that or that doesn't get broken out that way. Yeah, but also speaking of having just a bad deal. So going back to the 80s, Batman, 1989, mm-hmm. huge successful movie. But the guys who at that time owned the creative control for Batman had to sue Warner Brothers because... They weren't getting the money that they were owed as basically the owners of the owners of, of the, the Batman IP, of Batman. IP. Right. Yes. But ultimately the court found in Warner Brothers' favor, saying that while the deal was unfair, it wasn't unconscious unconscionable. 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 That's a tough word, yeah. Hate that word. Basically the idea being that, listen, it's a bad deal. But, but you it's a deal. It. Oh man. And I think that's what happens with a lot of these things is that you think, oh, I'm getting, you know, Stan Lee in the first Spider-Man movie, mm-hmm. the first mm-hmm. Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. I'm getting 10% of Spider-Man. 
creator Spider-Man, he gets a cameo, it's fantastic. No, he's getting 10% of the net profits. Right. And, you know, to this day, Sony's going to tell you, Spider-Man didn't make any money. Didn't make any money. It didn't make any money, so we couldn't pay you. Sorry. Well, then I guess I'm, what I'm thinking about then is, is right, who does own your work as an actor, your face, your voice, mm-hmm. all that? I mean, this is the, the, the big issue, right, that for was the, the other, Screen Actors Guild. That was the other major component of the strike was how who controls my face mm-hmm. can they use my face like just put it in the background this was in fact a black mirror episode i'm sure it was black, <laughs> black mirror is becoming way too way too fortune tellery yep but that was absolutely something that people were striking over is can you use my face without my consent and without paying me because technically you know if i use your face ben you never set foot on the studio right you were never there. You didn't do anything that day. I just used your image. Do I owe you money for that? Well, it's it. I think what we're dealing with here, Harper, is that is again is the transformation of art into content. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the you know the motion picture, whether it's you know written work, whether it's any sort of art is being transformed into content, and I don't see that stopping. No, I think it's just going to grow and grow. Well, this is a pretty depressing curse knowledge then, but it's – the only thing I'll say is that I, I do find that some technology, right, so chat GPT, it helps me when I when I don't know how am I – how is this contract, you know, I'll say kind of screwing me over. Mm-hmm. I do find that, you know, chat GPT can – be like an advisor to say, well, you might want to ask about this or that, because in so many of the things I can think of in my life where I've had to sign a legal document, whether it's for work, whether it's for buying a house, whether it's for taking a loan, whether whatever it is, I'm keenly aware that there's an informational asymmetry. The person on the other side of the table whose business this knows is a lot more than knows me. a lot more than than I do about mm-hmm. it, and they're going to filter the information I get for how I'm able to protect myself. So I'm, I, I think that finding ways to protect ourselves is going to be even more important going forward. Absolutely. I think a big, the big way that these studios are able to maintain this imbalance of power is through an imbalance of knowledge. They know more. They're able to do more. And I think that having more people just kind of understand how these contracts work the difference between net and gross profits, mm-hmm. these little types of wordings, I think those are the things that will really help make a change. Well, and the other thing that can change is, I mean, to write a book today, I'm going to self-publish. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I don't think was possible back in the day. So I, I am excited about the potential for going around these you know, existing distribution networks for content, mm-hmm. for art. But that struggle... Right from that bottom up, oh, we have the tools in order to distribute ourselves, but from the top down, access to an audience that can make that a commercial success, that's really the tension here. Mm-hmm. So I get the strike. Uh, what's the latest on it? Was it settled? It was settled. It was settled. They came to an agreement, and uh, I'm, I'm very positive. I'm very enthusiastic optimistic and enthusiastic about as it. A, as a union member yourself? As a union member who hasn't worked in uh, 13 years <laughs> and has no plans to, very positive. Very good. All right, Harper, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining me.
Thanks for listening. I hope you learned something new. And remember, the real curse is sharing this information with your friends, family, and unsuspecting coworkers. If you enjoyed this production, like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, tell us your most cursed knowledge by joining us on the forums at epsilontheory.com. <laughs>